Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 96. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this short introduction on November 20th, 2022, in Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. This is the short introduction to an encore presentation of one of our more popular episodes, Notes on Thanksgiving, first recorded and published on Thanksgiving Day 2021. It is, of course, a sidebar, which is our term for an episode off the timeline. I'm in the middle of a ton of travel, which does cut into the time available for reading and writing, never mind the hassle of schlepping around a big pile of books. Including the aforementioned trip to Cuba, I've had meaningful travel, a mix of business and family obligations and fun for eight weeks in a row, and will unfortunately continue to do for three of the next four weeks. Then things should slow down considerably for a while, which will make me very happy. I think most long-standing listeners know that I believe that Americans are, in the main, extraordinarily blessed. Yes, there are many public policies that we wish we handled differently, and we cannot even agree on which policies those are. The political division in our country, which has been much worse and manifestly more violent at various points in our past, has had the effect of degrading the capacity of the federal government. We have a media and political class that's decided that stoking rage and anxiety is very profitable, whether in click-driven ad revenue or endless and deeply cynical appeals for campaign contributions. Add to this that activists of all political stripes have decided in the main to describe everything in the most exaggerated possible way at the loudest available volume, to the point that there are young people today who think the state of the world is itself a good reason not to have children. I hope those young people reconsider before it's too late, because we are going to need the children of smart and thoughtful parents to build our future world. Notwithstanding that, for some reason, people all over the world want to come to the United States. And when they do, they often become the most vocal supporters of values that have made us different from most of the world for most of our history. Just last week, I had an Uber driver from Afghanistan. He had worked as a translator for the U.S. Army there, and when given the chance, had moved to Denver because the climate there is similar to that of his home country. He had become an American and blatantly loves its new country. Over a million people come here by various means every year. Only four or 5,000 people leave and surrender their citizenship when they do. Since American citizenship is expensive to maintain overseas because the United States almost uniquely taxes its citizens wherever they live, the fact that the number is so low is astonishing. Even people who leave this country are willing to pay a high price to preserve the option to return. None of this should blind us to the bad things Americans have done. We must confront our sins forthrightly. It's healthy to do so as it is for any individual person to do. And yet it's not healthy for that exploration of the bad things in our past to slide into national self-hatred. By the standards of nations in the world, past and present, there's an immense amount to celebrate here. That is why I believe so strongly that there is 
dignity in our national story, along with tragedy, triumph, brilliance, hypocrisy, magnificence, depravity, corruption, venality, inspiration, oppression, genius, defeat, and glory. We indeed have a great deal to be thankful for, even on this Thanksgiving, surrounded as we are by sour politics and a flagging economy. One of those things, as you are about to hear, is football. Now for the encore presentation of Notes on Thanksgiving. Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 49. I am your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on Wednesday evening before Thanksgiving Day, November 24th, 2021, in Austin, Texas. This is the 49th substantive episode of the podcast, but the actual 50th episode, insofar as the introductory episode is denominated episode zero. Because I have not figured out how to tweak the numbering on the website, it runs one episode ahead in the count versus the podcast apps. Oh, well, maybe I'll solve that someday. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. We believe there's dignity in our national story, along with tragedy, triumph, Brilliance, hypocrisy, magnificence, depravity, corruption, venality, inspiration, oppression, genius, defeat, and glory. Mostly, we hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, write us a nice review on Apple or wherever you like writing reviews, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. This is a labor of love, and your support is very motivating. This episode is a sidebar, Notes on Thanksgiving. Yeah, no, two sidebars in a row. Never fear, we will get back on the timeline in short order. I just like doing these special episodes over holidays, especially when they are important to the history of the Americans. And, well, they are less work than regular timeline episodes, so they are easier to do when I'm particularly busy. My main resource for this episode is a delightful book by Melanie Kirkpatrick, Thanksgiving, the Holiday at the Heart of the American Experience. As you might expect, especially if you read her op-ed in today's Wall Street Journal, Ms. Kirkpatrick is a fan of Thanksgiving and its history and defends it against the critics of the holiday including some of the descendants of the Indians killed, enslaved, and displaced by Europeans and their descendants over the centuries. As is my custom, I'm going to talk about the history of the holiday in American tradition and imagination without drawing lines, or at least straight ones, to contemporary political arguments. As most people who went to elementary school in the United States know, or at least knew, The first Thanksgiving, in quotes, occurred at Plymouth Colony in the fall of 1621, exactly 400 years ago today. Edward Winslow, one of the Mayflower settlers who had survived that first arduous year in the Wampanoag Indian Territory, described it in a letter that reached England in 1622. 
Here's Winslow's account in full. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent foremen in fowling, that so we might, after a special manner, rejoice together. After we had gathered the fruits of our labors, they four in one day killed as much fowl as with a little help besides, served the company almost a week, at which time, among other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us, and amongst the rest, their greatest king, Massasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. That's it. And here's the surprising bit. Winslow's letter was lost to history until 1820 and not widely accessible until it was published in 1841 by a fellow named Alexander Young, in a book called Chronicles of the Pilgrim Fathers. The only other evidence we have of the first Thanksgiving is a short and fairly obscure passage from William Bradford's Of Plymouth Plantation, which had also vanished from history, this time until 1855. Even though Americans did not have an account of the first Thanksgiving until the middle of the 19th century, The ancestors of European Americans celebrated days of Thanksgiving that looked a lot like Thanksgiving from very nearly the beginning. Indeed, the idea that a day be set aside for the giving of thanks, which might include prayer, conviviality, and feasting, is older than European settlement of North America. Without going all medieval on all y'all, The roots of the tradition among Europeans can be seen in the various claims for the first Thanksgiving that compete with Plymouth Colony slash Patuxet in 1621. There are actually many such claims. In late April 1598, the Entrada of Don Juan de Iñate y Salazar crossed the Rio Grande from Mexico at the site of the present-day San Elizario, Texas, just a bit southeast of El Paso. Anyati's expedition, which we will come to in the timeline in just a couple of weeks, was chasing down the old rumors of a vast Indian civilization with lots of gold and whatnot somewhere north of the Rio Grande. Why precisely the myth of the seven cities of gold had not died with the failure of the Soto and Coronado expeditions almost 60 years before? I actually have no idea. I suppose I'll develop some thoughts on that fraught topic before we get there in the timeline. In any case, the Anyata Entrada had had a very rough go of things just getting to the Rio Grande. They were starving and very short on water, and according to the leading chronicler of the mission, their suffering was such they were almost all wishing for death. Their thirst was so great that when they saw the river, they fell into it drinking until they appeared drunk. Two horses drank so much that they died when their stomachs literally burst from the pressure of the water. The expedition recovered under the cottonwood trees that grow on the banks of the Rio Grande, and during their ten days there, the Spanish got to know some of the local Indians, who were friendly to them. Anyate called for 
a day of thanksgiving, commanded that a temporary chapel be set up for a thanksgiving mass, and invited the Indians to a feast. The Spanish shot cranes, ducks, and geese. I'm guessing some doves, too. And the Indians brought fish from the river. They built a huge fire and cooked all that delicious stuff together. The Spanish even put on a play, a great drama, according to the chronicler. Quite possibly the first European play in today's United States. Candidly, the transplanted Texan in me, we modern colonists try to fit in, was pretty persuaded that Anyate's feast of Thanksgiving was every bit as legitimate as the first Thanksgiving in Plymouth 23 years later. Indeed, the Texas House passed a resolution in 1990 proclaiming that the first Thanksgiving in the United States had been at San Elizario, and Governor Ann Richards officially proclaimed that, quote, Although we are grateful to the English pilgrims who endured hardships and faced formidable risks to help colonize America, the Thanksgiving decreed by the Spaniard Don Juan de Ñate deserves equal credit and its own place in American history. All of this was followed up by a bit of Texan showmanship. In November 1991, a bunch of Texans dressed up as conquistadors and marched down the streets of Plymouth, Massachusetts, declaring Texas the home of the first American Thanksgiving. The good citizens of Plymouth jokingly arrested them, tossed them in the clink, and charged the Texan conquistadors with spreading, quote, malicious and false rumors and blasphemy. After a mock trial, they were acquitted on a technicality. Texan showmanship had found its match. In Massachusetts. While I think the historical record of the Anyate expedition and therefore the claim of Texas is pretty solid, it never captured the American imagination because people with English heritage ended up running the place. And as we shall see, that made all the difference. It must be said that there's another reason why Spanish Thanksgiving never took off. Anyate was a dirtbag especially in his treatment of the Indians of the Southwest. The Pilgrims, by comparison, lived in peace with the Wampanoag in Massachusetts for 50 years, a track record that was never repeated during the 400 years that Europeans and their descendants were spreading across the United States. Most Americans would rather think of themselves as carrying on the tradition of the Pilgrims than that of the Conquistadors, even if, in fact, they carry on both. There are several other more tenuous claims to the first Thanksgiving. The French Huguenots at Fort Caroline in 1564 celebrated religious feasts with Indians. And Pedro Menendez de Avilas, the founder of St. Augustine, and it must be said, the murderer of those same Huguenots, celebrated a Thanksgiving mass with Indians in September 1565. There are also competing claims made for the Popham Colony, which started on the coast of Maine in 1607, at the same time as the founding of Jamestown, but which failed within 14 months. And the Berkeley Plantation on the James River, which established an annual day of Thanksgiving in 1619, two years before that feast at Plymouth, but which was wiped out by the Powhatan Indians only a few years later. I think all these claims are weaker than Onyate's, but they add up to the key point. The European settlers and soldiers, who endured extreme privation in North America as 
all y'all regular and devoted listeners know, had numerous feasts of Thanksgiving that derived from European custom. I shall come back to this point because it explains why there were Thanksgivings and local and state Thanksgiving holidays and feasts and presidential and gubernatorial proclamations in recognition of such all across early America, even though that first Thanksgiving in Plymouth was lost to history for more than 200 years. It must be said that apart from the overt Christianity of European-American Thanksgivings, nothing about them would have been alien to many of the indigenous peoples of North America. There are no contemporaneous written records of Indian celebrations akin to Thanksgiving, because Indians at that point could not write stuff down. But Kirkpatrick writes that, quote, Tribal traditions and ethnological research indicate that Native American tribes practice Thanksgiving rituals at the harvest season, as well as other times of the year. The Green Corn Festival is still celebrated by a number of tribes, and one example. The pilgrim Edward Winslow, the same man whose contemporaneous letter to England described that first Thanksgiving at Plymouth, wrote a book in 1624 called Good News from New England, in which he described a conversation with local Indians about giving thanks by prayer for abundance, concluding that their indigenous practices were close to those of the English. No doubt there is much more work on this topic, of which I am just unaware or ignorant at this point. Of course, it has only been in the last 50 or 60 years that Americans descended from Europeans and other non-indigenous groups paid much attention to ancient Indian practices in this or any other area. The first president to mention Indian Thanksgiving ceremonies in his annual proclamation was Ronald Reagan in 1984. Fitzgerald reviews the long history of celebrating Thanksgiving Day in the lands that are now the United States. Long before the United States was a thing, towns and states would declare days of thanksgiving, which were given over to prayer, feasting, family time, and as the years went by, sports. I'm not going to go into this at length, but one very recent story published by the New England Historical Society bears recounting. It seems that in 1704, towns across New England had decided to celebrate Thanksgiving on November 4th, but the feast had to be delayed in Colchester because of a shortage of molasses. An Arctic blast right out of the Little Ice Age had frozen the rivers in the region, and the people of the town had not been able to lay in the essential supplies. Quoting from the article now. In 1705, November 4th had been proclaimed a day of thanksgiving. But as the day approached, Colchester had almost no molasses. Worse, nothing could be delivered on the frozen river to the settlement. Why molasses? New England colonists used molasses imported from the West Indies because it didn't cost as much as sugar. A byproduct of sugar refining, colonists used it in baked beans, brown bread, and pumpkin pie. By 1750, colonists consumed an average of three quarts of molasses a year. The English colonists had learned from the Native Americans about the pumpkin, called pumpion, and adapted it to their own cuisine. The pumpkin pie came to symbolize the New World bounty celebrated by Thanksgiving. 
By the time Colchester discovered its molasses shortage in 1705, pumpkin pie had been a well-established dessert for half a century. The weather turned unusually frigid in the Connecticut Valley town that fall. In mid-October, a terrible cold snap lasted for three days, followed by mild weather and then a blast of even colder weather. The river froze. A frigid wind blew and a storm blanketed Colchester under three feet of snow. Because the river rarely froze so early, the settlers hadn't laid in winter provisions usually shipped from Norwich and New London. Colchester relied on boats to deliver supplies along a tributary of the Connecticut River, 10 miles away. In 1705, November 4th had been proclaimed a day of Thanksgiving, but as the day approached, Colchester had almost no molasses. Worse, nothing could be delivered on the frozen river to the settlement. Without molasses, the townsfolk of Colchester couldn't make pumpkin pie. Nor could they have baked beans, molasses cake, or sweetener for rum. The bottom line, no molasses, no Thanksgiving. And so Colchester's town fathers postponed Thanksgiving for a week because they couldn't hold it with convenience on November 4th. The article, which I will link in the show notes, goes on to reproduce the resolution passed postponing Thanksgiving. We late pandemic Americans are not the first, apparently, to face supply chain issues in the preparation of our ceremonial feast. When the states finally united to become the United States, presidents proclaimed Thanksgiving. Five of the first presidents, the presidents of the Continental Congress under the Articles of Confederation, issued Thanksgiving proclamations, all with a gracious and deeply religious bent. But they had no power and therefore provoked no controversy. It would be George Washington who would establish the practices of American presidents proclaiming Thanksgiving. He did so twice, the first time in answer to a congressional resolution in 1789 that was controversial. On September 25, 1789, Representative Elias Boudinot of New Jersey rose just before Congress was about to recess and proposed that the Congress resolve to ask the president to declare a day of public thanksgiving and prayer in recognition of ratification of the Constitution the previous year. Boudinot was not new in this idea insofar as the Continental Congress during the war and under the Articles of Confederation had done so repeatedly. This time, however, two representatives from South Carolina Adonis Burke and Thomas Tudor Tucker rose in opposition. Their objections were three, all of which would be totally recognizable to politically engaged Americans today. First, they argued that a national proclamation of Thanksgiving went beyond the scope of the enumerated powers of the presidency under the new Constitution. Second, making a sort of freedom fries argument, the South Carolinians argued that a day of Thanksgiving was too European. In other words, they objected to an American Thanksgiving precisely because it had roots in European customs. Finally, they argued that it violated the separation of church and state, Thanksgiving being an overtly religious holiday back then. In this context, it should be said that the Bill of Rights had not been passed, 
But the Congress had just approved the language of the First Amendment, which provides for that separation, and a National Day of Thanksgiving would make a mockery of it. In the end, however, the resolution passed the House and sailed through the Senate. On October 3rd, 1789, George Washington proclaimed Thursday, November 26, 1789, a day of public thanksgiving and prayer. The Capitol then being in New York City, Washington sent $25, then a meaningful sum, to a Presbyterian church in the city directing that it be applied towards relieving the poor of the Presbyterian churches. This is a rare example of Washington making his gifts to charity public, so we can trust that he had a purpose. We can indeed thank President Washington for establishing the national example of charity on Thanksgiving Day, which continues even now. The record shows that Thanksgiving was celebrated throughout our young country that year. Washington also established the form of the closing of the presidential proclamation in 1795, which read, Done at the city of Philadelphia, the first day of January 1795, and of the independence of the United States of America, the 19th. That reference to the independence of the United States would also continue to the present day. Donald Trump's proclamation of 2018 closed the same way, quote, in witness whereof, this is a guy who's hung around with lawyers more than most people, I have hereunto set my hand this 20th day of November in the year of our Lord 2018 and of the independence of the United States of America, the 243rd. John Adams and James Madison would continue the practice, but Thomas Jefferson would not in 1808. This was not because he was against Thanksgiving. He had issued Thanksgiving proclamations as governor of Virginia. Jefferson, however, believed that Thanksgiving proclamations violated the separation of church and state and explained in a letter that he, quote, did not consider himself authorized to issue a proclamation because the Constitution prohibits a president from intermeddling with religious institutions, their doctrines, disciplines, or exercises. Further, he believed, as those South Carolinian representatives had 19 years before, that the Constitution reserves to the states the powers not delegated to the central government, and surely the declaration of a Thanksgiving holiday was not so delegated. Presidential proclamations disappeared between Madison in 1815 and Abraham Lincoln in 1863. Lincoln revived the practice and reestablished Thanksgiving as a national holiday in practice, even though it had not become one formally until the 1940s. To be sure, it was practiced on various dates, mostly in November, all over the country, but presidents remained silent. The story of its return just after the turning of the tide of the Civil War involves an extraordinarily gifted woman, one of the most popular writers of her day. We have already seen how the story of the Pilgrims' first Thanksgiving vanished until the middle of the 19th century, during this long period when our presidents did not proclaim it. We owe our modern, national Thanksgiving holiday to a brilliant woman named Sarah Josepha Hale. Hale was born Sarah Josepha Buell in Newport, New Hampshire in 1788, and was by all measure remarkable. 
Over the course of her career, she was a prolific author, editor, social reformer, abolitionist, and above all, a relentless advocate for women's rights, especially to an education. Quoting Kirkpatrick now, A partial list of Hale's achievements on behalf of women includes leading the fight for property rights for married women, campaigning for women to be welcome as teachers in public schools, supporting medical education for women, creating the first daycare center for small children and the first public playground, founding a society dedicated to increasing the wages of working women, and helping to found Vassar College, the first college for women. She invented the term domestic science as part of her effort to elevate the status of housekeeping. Back to me, Hale had an arrestingly modern marriage. At the relatively late age of 25, she married a New Hampshire lawyer by the name of David Hale. The couple had a routine of nightly study. They would sit together every evening from 8 o'clock until 10 reading classics, studying language and the sciences, and examining the prose styles of the great English writers. She and her husband were fantastic polymaths, and her story makes me remember that most of us, including me, have wasted too much time in our lives. In the course of her life, Hale published seven volumes of poetry, one of which included Mary Had a Little Lamb. She wrote six novels, including an anti-slavery novel in 1827 called Northwood, A Tale of New England. That novel would go on to be a national bestseller and publisher in London, which Fitzpatrick describes as a rare honor for an American writer back then. She also wrote a 900-page reference book about women in history. Hale's writing eventually landed her the job in 1837, when she was 49 years old, of editor of the immensely popular women's magazine, Godey's Ladies' Book. She would edit it for 40 more years, and by the eve of the Civil War, Godey's Ladies' Book would be the most widely circulated periodical in the United States. Along the way, she would recruit some of the most famous American writers of the 19th century, including Harriet Beecher Stowe, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Washington Irving, and Edgar Allan Poe, who wrote that Hale was, quote, a lady of fine genius and masculine energy and ability. We report, you decide. From the 1840s to the 1860s, as the stories of the Pilgrim Fathers' first Thanksgiving spread with the publication of Winslow's letter and William Bradford's of Plymouth Plantation, Hale used the huge platform of Godey's Ladies' Book to advocate for a national Thanksgiving holiday, among her many other causes. She would argue tirelessly for the old New England custom of Thanksgiving and track the states that proclaimed and celebrated the holiday. In 1846, for example, 22 of the 28 states observed Thanksgiving, and 17 of those did so on the same day. In 1847, Arkansas and Mississippi joined up, and California declared its first Thanksgiving in 1849, even before it was a state. The Republic of Texas had beaten the newcomers to the punch, however. Sam Houston named a Thanksgiving Day in 1842, and the state of Texas declared its first Thanksgiving in 1848. 
Hale wrote to presidents tirelessly, almost relentlessly, asking for national recognition of Thanksgiving. And no doubt they had to listen to her. Zachary Taylor and James Polk, however, both demurred on the same old grounds that Thanksgiving was not a federal question. Abraham Lincoln, in the fall of 1863, after the decisive Union victories at Gettysburg and Vicksburg that summer, agreed with Hale and made it national. And in all but the most technical sense, there it remained. Every president since has proclaimed Thanksgiving, although not without a few screw-ups. They made it to the new world, Josh. You know what I get to do now? I get to proclaim a national day of Thanksgiving. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, President of the United States. This is a great job. Hale's letter to Lincoln is republished at the end of Fitzpatrick's book, and I again recommend it as a bracing read with far more than this one podcast episode can bring to the table. Thanksgiving would go on to memorialize national unity in the increasingly diverse United States. For early and telling evidence of this ideal, take a look at Thomas Nast's 1869 cartoon, Uncle Sam's Thanksgiving Dinner. It is the featured image for this episode on the website for the podcast, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, and is readily available via your favorite search engine. Nash was perhaps the greatest political cartoonist of the 19th century, and that he would draw such a picture only six years after Lincoln re-proclaimed Thanksgiving in the middle of the tendentious Reconstruction era is remarkable. The matter of Thanksgiving and the history and culture of the Americans is vast, and we cannot do it justice in this modest episode. We cannot, however, pass over the role of football. Thanksgiving football did not begin with the Detroit Lions. Not by a long shot. On Thanksgiving Day, November 30th, 1873, only 10 years after Lincoln's proclamation, Princeton beat Yale 3-0 in Hoboken, New Jersey. The game was a hit and a few years later moved to New York City. The Princeton-Yale Thanksgiving Day game became an annual tradition and by the 1890s was drawing 40,000 spectators. Now let's turn to Fitzgerald's account, quote, The game was not just an athletic contest. It was a major social event in which all levels of New York society, old and young, male and female, rich and poor, took part. In the words of Richard Harding Davis writing in Harper's Weekly about the 1893 game, it didn't matter whether New Yorkers could tell a touchdown from a three-base hit or knew whether Yale is a city, state, or club. They knew that the Yales and the Princetons were going to fight it out in New York, and they wanted to join in the fun even if they couldn't afford to buy a ticket to the game. Yes, the Princeton-Yale Thanksgiving was a spectacle, he concluded, but it was still the greatest sporting event this country has to show. The Princeton-Yale game in New York was a catalyst for the creation of a popular audience for Thanksgiving football. In 1893, 120,000 athletes played in 5,000 Thanksgiving games across the country, demonstrating an enthusiasm for the sport 
that stretch far beyond the Ivy League. Your host, as it happens, is an alumnus of Princeton and could not be happier that beating Yale was the foundational moment of a great American tradition. Professional football was relatively late to the Thanksgiving party, even if it dominates television today. The first professional leagues emerged in the early 20th century and regularly played Thanksgiving games. In 1920, the first year of the National Football League, there were six games that Thanksgiving day. Fitzgerald goes on in some detail over the Detroit Lions establishing their long tradition in 1934. Your host is also delighted to report that he saw the Detroit Lions play in the old Pontiac Silverdome on Thanksgiving 1983, being a law student in Ann Arbor at the time. American Thanksgiving has, until recently, marked the launch of the commercial side of the Christmas season. The day after Thanksgiving, known as Black Friday for reasons that are not quite clear, Fitzgerald parses this question at some length, so go read her book if you are interested, had achieved such importance to the success of the retail game by the end of the 1930s that it became the object of one of the more misguided New Deal economic interventions. In 1939, Thanksgiving would have fallen so late that the Christmas shopping season would only have been 20 or so days. Remember, Sundays were off limits back then. And with the help of at least some retailers, Franklin Roosevelt hit upon the idea of moving Thanksgiving back a week to lengthen the Christmas shopping season and thereby stimulate the moribund economy. Unfortunately, FDR did not think of this idea until August 14th, far too late to reschedule Thanksgiving events, including, most importantly, football games. The result was chaos and partisan divide. Thanksgiving remained technically a matter for the states to proclaim and organize, even if they had been in almost complete lockstep between Lincoln and FDR's impulsive rescheduling. Democratic governors, with a few exceptions, supported the president. But Republican governors listening to the football fans held the line. That year, the several states had two different Thanksgivings, and national unity became national division. Worse, Subsequent economic analysis showed that the added shopping days did not result in incremental spending. As a stimulus package, moving Thanksgiving was an epic fail. And within a couple of years, FDR threw in the towel and reverted to the traditional schedule. The question of food on Thanksgiving arouses passions, as it should. So I'll close by reporting my own bit of bomb-throwing around the Thanksgiving table. Years ago, at a large family gathering that involved all the usual Thanksgiving food, including, it should be said, my mother's pumpkin bread, which she still bakes, I like to think in homage to the Colombian exchange, various relatives started gushing about how great the Thanksgiving dinner food is. Truth be told, it's not my favorite food, and in my callow late youth, I thought it would be a Good idea to ask whether it was really true that we liked Thanksgiving dinner so much. And if it were, why was it that almost no fine restaurants or even family casual dining chains offer Thanksgiving dinner as an entree? This provoked outrage, convivial, but with the scorn heaping in which my family has been known to traffic, I was denounced. 
I did have one supporter, however. My younger sister, who very sadly for many of us died more than seven years ago, spoke up in my defense. Trust me when I say that this very rarely happened, but my sister was, like me, a bit of an iconoclast. Actually more so. But Thanksgiving is for the iconoclasts, too. Even though I am not a huge fan of the traditional food served on Thanksgiving, I do appreciate its ceremonial importance. In this regard, I think the closest and most ancient analog to our Thanksgiving is the Passover Seder, in which people eat food they only sort of like because of its ceremonial importance. Jews who celebrate the Passover eat specific foods to remember and in so doing feel the presence of God. And that is, in the end, the original basis of our own unique national holiday. Thanksgiving is the American Passover, plus football. I'll wrap up with this last observation. It is traditional in many American families to ask the family and loved ones gathered together to say what they are thankful for. Notwithstanding the current times in which it is fashionable to worry that America is not living up to its ideals and is in the midst of something of a national crisis of faith in its institutions and traditions, I believe there remains a great deal for which we all ought to be thankful. If that tradition of giving thanks is fading in your family, as it has to some degree in mine, in all honesty, consider reviving it this Thanksgiving. Assuming, of course, that you manage to squeeze in listening to this podcast before you actually serve the dinner. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. And you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, pets in the back, or invitations to cocktail parties on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at the history of the Americans at gmail.com. Until next time.